On May 3rd of last year, 2012, Stig Severinsen, the world champion freediver, set the world record for holding his breath underwater. His time, an unbelievable, I kid you not, 22 minutes. 22 minutes. Now, beforehand, he was able to hyperventilate with oxygen. Just kept sucking oxygen in for like 19 minutes, I think, and it rids your body of uh, uh, carbon dioxide, and you're able to uh, hold your breath for a lot longer, but still absolutely amazing. In an article on extreme breath holding, Kara Smuziak wrote this, when you hold your breath, carbon dioxide builds up as your body uses up oxygen. After a minute or two, for most people, the result is an overwhelming urge to breathe. An overwhelming urge to breathe. We've all experienced that overwhelming urge to breathe. This desire for oxygen, better yet, a desire to live. Oxygen gives life, and each time we inhale, our lungs show us how much we do crave life. And it's similar to our lives. The discomfort and tension we all feel in life is our overwhelming urge to really breathe, to really live. Every hurt or disappointment or struggle is discomfort that communicates something significant, our desperation for God. Like gasping for breath, (gasps) we gasp for God though we may not always notice. Our discomfort in life exists because we gasp for God. We need the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is necessity. We need it, and it needed to happen for us to have eternal life. Well, God is eternal oxygen, and life totally depends on a desperate inhalation of Christ and his cross. Without Jesus, we suffocate. We need the cross more than we need our next breath of air. And if we are to really breathe, and I mean really live now and forever, we must breathe deeply in faith. But things get in the way. The barrier to the cross. The barrier to the cross. Nicodemus said to Jesus, verse 9, and you can keep your Bibles open to John 3. Follow along. We're going to go to one other place, but please keep your Bibles open. It's, it's important to keep referencing it. Verse 9, he says, how can these things be? How can what you're saying be true? He was struggling to understand how God truly changes people's lives. His vision was blocked. And Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person, or that would mean the person that is not born again, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Being born again is the key to understanding spiritual realities the key to understanding the things of the Spirit of God. Verse 3 says, if you remember, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was the root of Nicodemus' problem. Jesus even said in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus called him the teacher of Israel, recognizing his influence among the Jews 
his education, and his prestigious position of power. Now, I've heard that Pharisees like Nicodemus would have uh, the entire Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, committed to memory. That's what Pharisees did. That's over 5,800 verses of Scripture by memory. He knew the Old Testament really, really well, but was still entirely missing the point. So understand that education and position do not clear a way to the cross. Intelligence is not the highest goal of humanity, and neither is power. The barrier to the cross is mentioned in verse 11. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you do not re- uh, receive our testimony. And though Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, the you in verse 11 is plural. Jesus referred to all of the Pharisees or possibly all of the Jews. Nicodemus and the religious highbrows hadn't taken hold of the gospel. They didn't believe the gospel. They didn't embrace it. In verse 12, Jesus said that they did not even believe earthly things. So if you state it very simply, Nicodemus's barrier to the cross was the hardness of his own heart and his refusal to receive and to believe Jesus. His barrier was that he was not a born-again believer. That got in the way. Now, being educated in religious things is so different than clinging to the cross with white-knuckled dependence. Totally different. People get stuck in intellectualism. They get stuck in the mind only and never move into true understanding and knowledge because of of a refusal to believe and depend on Christ. So the cross to them remains foolish and boring and irrelevant. Horace Mann, the American education reformist and politician who was nicknamed the father of the common school movement, said, a human being is not attaining his full heights until he is educated. Now, my question is, is education the key to human meaning and purpose? Nelson Mandela said, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. Does education itself really contain the power to change the world? Call me crazy, but I don't believe education and position is the highest virtue and hope of humanity. Education is very important, very, very important. So kids don't say, he doesn't even think we should be educated. Dropping out today. (laughs) Don't go there, all right? There's some applause from the children. All right, education is very important, but without the new birth, humanity remains unchanged and education is hollow. C.S. Lewis said, education without values, as useful as it is, seems rather to make man a more clever devil. Nicodemus was an educated intellectual. He knew a ton about the Bible, probably had the entire Pentateuch memorized held high office, but was without spiritual knowledge, and he was therefore lost. And aren't we all a little bit like Nicodemus, a little bit able to connect with him, perhaps sitting in church our entire lives, but missing something right in front of us that is so obvious about God and about ourselves? 
Do we miss the obvious because we're not born again? Do we miss the obvious because we're just spiritually immature? Do we miss the obvious because there's some unrepented of sin in our life that we just refuse to deal with? We must be born again and we must believe. And praise God that this barrier to the cross of being born again has been obliterated and removed by grace so we can trust God in everything. That's sovereign, amazing grace. That's something to celebrate. That's something to rejoice in. Nicodemus may have been influential. He may have been powerful. He might have held high position, may have been the teacher of Israel, but Jesus was the most influential and powerful teacher of Israel, the authority behind the cross, the authority behind the cross. Jesus once again emphasized his words in verse 11. Take a look. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony And what Jesus said was based upon what he had known and seen and experienced before. Jesus was speaking from personal experience, from close relationship with God. He has perfect knowledge of God and speaks out of that perfect knowledge. And I'm not sure exactly why Jesus uses we in verse 11, but he's talking mostly about himself either way. And then probably others who also know and have seen spiritual realities. Perhaps he's talking about John the Baptist, maybe the prophets, but definitely himself. The Pharisees, Nicodemus included, had earthly authority in a religious system. They were really powerful guys. And uh, really, I think the Jews held them up. But Jesus had actual authority over all of creation, not just within a religious system, an authority that was given directly by God, and yet they still rejected his authority and experience. He says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So who has heavenly authority? Who has been there? Been there, done that. Um, Therefore, is qualified to speak with authority on heaven, heavenly realities. Well, Jesus, the Son of Man, he said the Son of Man, the, the only one who descended from heaven. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. That's Jesus, the only one that descended, the only one that came. Jesus referred to himself often as the Son of Man. He is the Son of God that descended from heaven to earth. He is God come in the flesh with the authoritative language of heaven. He knows because he has seen and he has experienced and he speaks from that. He talked about the earthly reality of the new birth in verses one through six and Nicodemus and the Jews just didn't understand. They weren't on the same page. They were confused. How then will they understand the heavenly reality that Jesus is the entire foundation of the new birth? How are they gonna get that if they can't even understand this whole new birth thing? Now, someone can watch World War II movies, uh, spend a lot of time to do that all they want. They could read the history books all that they want. They could even interview veterans, but it doesn't give them the same authority, right, as someone who ran from the Higgins boat with adrenaline and waterlogged boots with bullets whizzing by as they stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. Experience adds credibility, And behind the new birth and the cross that makes it possible is the authority of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is God, and he was sent from God from outside of time and space to come inside and to dialogue about how someone is born again. He's coming with a certain dogmatism in what he says because he knows how this stuff works. And he is leading Nicodemus, and he's leading you and me to this wonderful place of healing and restoration and eternal joy and comfort found in the cross. With divine authority and experience, Jesus explains the necessity of the cross, how it needed to happen for new birth to be accomplished, the necessity of the cross. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, what does that mean? You read that and you're like, serpent? Jesus being compared to a serpent? This is odd. Well, Nicodemus had just asked the question, how can these things be? How is the new birth really possible? And the answer is verse 14, the cross, the cross. Now, we have some talented seamstresses here. Raise your hand if you're a seamstress, if you can sew like nobody's business. All right, two people. I thought there might be more. Three people. All right, the hands are going up. Now, what holds the fabric of a patchwork quilt together? I think it's the thread, right? The thread. Without the thread, the patchwork doesn't work. Without the cross, being born again doesn't work. In verse 14, Jesus on the cross is compared with the bronze serpent that Moses was lifting up in the wilderness. Isn't that a little odd? Uh, Considering serpents aren't usually a good thing in the scripture... They kind of had connotations to what happened in the garden, if you can remember that. Not too good. So let's take a trip back to Moses in Numbers 21. Keep your finger in John 3, but I want you to turn back to Rome, or Romans, yeah, Numbers 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book of the Bible from the beginning. And we're going to hear what happened, and we're going to better understand why this comparison is made to Jesus here. All right, we're going to begin in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Now, why go around Edom and not through it? Well, Edom was the nation that came from Esau, and Israel was the nation that came from Jacob. So though these are brother nations, there was bad blood between them, some bad history. If you remember your Bible history, these two brothers had some contention between them, and so it carries over to these nations. And Israel asked to pass through Edom, but the king of Edom says, "Mm, I don't think so. You're not going to come through. And then he assembled this huge army to enforce the fact that they couldn't go through. All right? So Israel went around. Continuing in verse number four. And the people became impatient on the way. They probably didn't want to walk around. You've got to be kidding me. I have to walk around Edom. We're related to these people. You know, and they're walking around grumbling. Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Well, it's not like Egypt was uh, an all-inclusive sandals resort. I mean, it was, they were embittered in slavery, like bitter slavery, for 430 years, and God set them free and was leading them into the promised land. 
yet selfishness and discontent overshadowed the freedom they enjoyed and were really taking, taken for granted. Sounds too familiar. America. For many years, America understood the cost and privileges of freedom, and we were grateful to God, and now we are selfish and discontent, a nation that is willingly exchanging our precious freedoms for entitlements and socialism. We've taken our eye completely off the ball, and that's exactly what Israel did. They took their eye off of God, off of what he was doing in their midst, off of where he was leading them. Uh, they, they took their eye off of what God could do and his power and the great divine blessing that he was giving on them. And so they just completely missed it. They complained and rebelled, and it wasn't the first time that they complained and rebelled. They had been complaining since God liberated them from Egypt. When things got tough, they complained about food. It's just not good enough. We don't have enough of it. There's no meat. We're sick of manna and all of the rest. They slandered God and Moses. Now, before we continue in verse 6 with this story, I want us to remember something. What did God tell Adam and Eve would happen if they ate the fruit in the garden? They would die. They would die. That would be their judgment. God made it very clear. Can't misunderstand God at the beginning. So he, he gave them a fair chance there, there. They would die. Any disobedience is infinite treason against God and deserves, maybe even better yet, earns God's fair and holy just, just, uh, justice and judgment, which is both physical and spiritual death. Fair is everybody dies. Abundant grace is even one person surviving that. You have to understand that before understanding verse 6 and John 3, 14. This is what happens to Israel. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. God's righteous judgment coming through fiery snake bites, venomous bites. Now, I don't know what kind of serpents these were, but I was doing a little research on serpents and found some really interesting things. I was reading on... Uh, a bit on the black mamba, which is found in Africa. Actually, a really cool-looking snake. They're really aggressive snakes, and uh, the fastest land snakes in the world, reaching about speeds of 12 miles per hour. So these things can track you down. <laughs> um, they can strike 12 times in a row, and one bite um, is, is potent enough to kill 10 to 25 fully-grown adults. Um, the venom of a black mamba is a neurotoxin which disrupts the nervous system. When the venom courses through your body, it eventually produces convulsions, respiratory arrest, coma, and eventually death. The bite can kill you in as little as 15 minutes. A powerful snake. God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. Verse 7 and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. You see, they knew their sin. They knew where they had gone wrong. And that that brought the judgment of God. They slandered God and Moses, and now they're pleading. They're pleading in desperation for the mercy of God. And the parallel is pretty simple for us. 
we all have a deadly venom of sin pulsing through our veins. We are desperate for mercy. We need God to alleviate his judgment somehow or sin's venomous bite will kill us. But God does not leave us without an anti-venom to offset the venom of sin. You remember? This is such an interesting connection. Genesis 3.15, the first place that the gospel shows up in the Bible. God tells the serpent, he shall, the serpent now, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel You see, Satan struck his heel through death, but Jesus crushed the head of Satan through the cross and resurrection. Verse 7, this is how it ends for Israel. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, God's judgment is severe. God's judgment sometimes is very quick. But his mercy and grace give life. If anyone was dying from the snake bite, they simply needed to raise their head and look at the snake and be healed. Look and live. Look at the bronze serpent on the pole and live. Believe what God has said. Respond and live. The raised bronze serpent was life. Was life for the people. Now why did all of that happen? Consider 1 Corinthians 10, 9 and 11. Listen to this. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. They were written down for our instruction. These guys here, Paul, is reading this account back there. It was written down so that they can learn something from history, so that they can better understand why that happened. Je- or Numbers 21 is clearly the gospel. The bronze serpent on the pole is the gospel. Being born again has everything to do with that imagery of a bronze snake lifted up in the wilderness, giving relief and life to everyone who would look upon it in faith. It points to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had to be lifted up on that tree. He had to die on the bloody cross. He had to give his life if anyone was to be born again and therefore saved. And Nicodemus didn't understand, but he eventually would. He was converted later. The cross was necessity. It is necessity. Now flip flip back to uh, John 3.14. John 3.14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, he had to be lifted up on that cross. If he is not lifted up, everyone dies. And there is something significant here that you must see. The serpent signifies sin, right? And most times when you think serpent, you're like evil, sin, curse. The serpent and the curse go together. When Jesus was lifted up on that brutal Roman cross... He became the curse of sin for us. There's an incredible connection with Jesus. 
Paul wrote in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was lifted up to become sin, to become the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross... Christ became the curse. He became sin. He took our sin. He took our curse upon himself and was lifted up and provided new life to everyone who looks in faith, who looks in faith. There is only one way to survive a black mamba bite. Get good medical attention quickly. Get to a hospital quickly. Get the anti-venin in you. So it can work. Many people meander through life putting off treatment. While the venom of sin breaks them down to death, they even ignore the symptoms of the bite. Brokenness and misery is everywhere we look. In our own lives, inside of ourselves and outside. Why is our world broken? Why are we broken? Brokenness in marriage, brokenness in parenting, brokenness in the workplace and friendships and government and media, brokenness and pain and suffering is everywhere. Why? Because inside of us is a venom that will kill us if we don't look to the cross. So what does Jesus tell us to do? The belief in the cross. The belief in the cross. In the cross, the language of verse 15 is very important, so let's read 14 and 15 again. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The word that in verse 15 is significant. Verse 14 happened so that, or in order that, verse 15 could be true. Jesus was lifted up and crucified on the cross so that everyone who believes would receive eternal life. The cross makes eternal life possible through faith. In the first eight verses of John 3, uh, Jesus is really explaining the sovereign grace of God, the, the, the sovereign work of God in sinners' hearts to bring about the new birth. But in verses 9 through 15, he reveals the human responsibility of salvation, We're not just passively sitting over here. He works salvation in us, but we respond to the gospel. We must respond to the gospel. We must understand the gospel. We must receive the gospel and believe the gospel. Jesus said, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our responsibility before God is to believe in Jesus Christ. And don't forget the imposter's faith from two weeks ago. To believe is more than believing God exists. That's not what he's talking about. The belief Jesus is referring to is saving faith. The kind of belief that puts all trust and joy in Jesus Christ. Never simply nodding at the facts. Yes, I believe that. Yes, I think that's true. But cherishing and treasuring the facts. Putting all of your eggs in the basket of Jesus Christ, so to speak. So while he's talking to this powerful, influential leader of Israel, a very confused religious leader who thought life was about obeying the law, Jesus showed 
that life was really about believing in him, trusting in him. A belief rooted in the new birth and secured by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought of why people diversify their investments? They have a certain portfolio, a certain amount of money, and a lot of the times they diversify and put it in different places. Stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities, uh, mutual funds, you spread out the money. Why? Well, I think the idea is to lessen the risk because if you dump all of your money 100% in one spot and that investment fails, you're out all that money. However, if you spread it out, it gives you more wiggle room and allows the gains to offset the losses with hopes that each of the things that you've invested in makes massive gains. All right, But if they don't and one fails, then these over here who had better gains can compensate from the losses and so you spread it out. And I think that's probably a pretty good investment strategy, but it's a terrible spiritual strategy. It's just awful. Genuine belief in the cross is putting all of your life in one place. It's not holding things back or reserving certain things to keep away from Jesus and to put somewhere else and to spread it all out. No, with Jesus, it's all or nothing. The gain comes when you put all of it in Christ, when all of you is in Christ. It's a one-way ticket. It's planning for taking a hike and you are, I've just got food for one way because I'm not coming back. That's what this is about. It's, uh, it's the race that you run and at the end you just collapse because you, you gave it all in the race. You have no energy left and so you just pass out. Um, it's the fourth quarter and you're down by one, right? And there are three seconds left and the play call is the halfback pass for the two-point conversion. And if you don't put the ball in, your team loses. You don't tie, you don't win, you lose. That's what kind of faith we're talking about here. All in one place, all on one play. Leave it all on the court, leave it all on the field. We're giving it all, it's all or nothing. And if you think about it, Jesus did not go to the cross for us to trust in him something else. He went to the cross to be the supreme source of life. He went to the cross so that anyone and everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. Our last point, the life from the cross. Jesus told Nicodemus, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And we're going to talk about eternal life next week. You're going to want to be here. But know that eternal life is really good. And it lasts a really long time. The good news of the cross is that it gives life. It gives life. The bronze serpent in the wilderness was God graciously providing healing and life for everyone who looked up. And yet God provided us something even better in the cross. Eternal life. The cross is where starving refugees feast on bread. The cross is where thirsty wanderers drink the cool, refreshing water. The cross is where lost travelers find their way and get direction. The cross is where prisoners in the cell of frigid and cold darkness are led out to freedom in the warmth of the shining sun. The cross is where the dead emerge to live again. Life is found in the cross. After each of our kids 
was born, I put together some pictures and movie footage of their birth to make this one like birth video, which was really cool, not very graphic as some birth videos can be. But um, I was watching the videos the other day, and uh, it just warms my heart to, to watch that and to remember back. And I'm reminded of the preciousness of life, how precious life is, how precious my children are, and how God develops life in the womb and breathes life into little kids. It's just a fantastic, exciting experience. We celebrate life, and it's a tremendous gift. And our God gives us life from the cross. He gave up the life of his only son so that all those who believe could have life in him. Death reigns where there is no son and no life. The cross was necessary and unveiled the light of sovereign grace. God gives us new birth. God gives us faith and God gives us life. That is to be celebrated. My dad has said in the past, I've heard him say that, The church is a hospital, not a museum. I just, I really like that imagery because hospitals are for sick people, for those who need help, not for those who want to stand there and show off and be admired. There is so much truth to that quote of my dad, but I realize that there's actually more to the analogy than what I had seen before. Where are babies born? Most of them are born in hospitals, are born in hospitals. Hospitals fight to preserve life. They come in with help for the the hurting and the, the sick with severe illnesses, but they also participate in bringing new life about, and they get to be there, front row seat of God bringing life into the world. Jerusalem Church is not about displaying ourselves for the admiration of other people, can we just let that spirit die in this church? Because I don't want you looking at me having to show up and to put my face on to have you say, well, our pastor, he's perfect. He doesn't struggle with it. Do you know what kind of pressure that puts on me? Let me be Jonathan, and when I fail, you forgive me. Let me be who God created me to be And then when something gets tripped up, which I guarantee will happen, if not next week, maybe the next, but sometimes it happens, forgive me. Walk with me as your brother in Christ. And isn't that what we want each person coming into this church to be? Not to come and to show off, not to say, look and admire me for how I'm so great at all this stuff. I've got everything together. Look at my beautiful children. Look at this, look at that. I've got money, I've got this. And we're like, is that even real? Do you live in the world that I live in? Because that's not me, man. I'm struggling. I'm hurting here. Everybody who comes in here, that's a vision, like a tenacious vision I have for this church that we would be able to take the bruised and the broken and say, you're in the right place. We love you. And we're going to walk with you through the struggle and the sin to help you come out on the other side with life and healing. Because I don't have it all together. Neither do you. And we need to celebrate grace and celebrate healing and life coming for the broken here at Jerusalem Church. I am here because I'm broken. I am here because I need the gospel. I preach because the gospel means something to me personally and how I have failed in this life. Jerusalem exists to see people healed, to see people 
have life and to see new spiritual birth come alive. We want Jerusalem Church to be a place of life and to celebrate life and everything that that could possibly mean. We celebrate life here. Our whole purpose is to point people to the cross, point them to the cross where they can experience healing and life there. We celebrate the cross and we celebrate life. In the wilderness, everybody who was bitten by the snake simply looked at the bronze snake and they were healed by God. Well, we all have been bitten by the snake of sin. The venom is going through. We are all dying. That is the reality of life. And so all we have to do, church, is look to the cross. Look to what Jesus did there. Look to the amazing truth and healing and life and joy and mercy and relief that is found in the cross. Look to Christ by faith. Look to Jesus and find life. Look to Jesus and find comfort for your soul. That's the message here. I want to close with Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Just listen to this beautiful and powerful passage. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is our Christ. Look to the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing message of the cross. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you that there is an anti-venom, that we have something that we can look to that will completely heal us. Yes, we will struggle with sin now if we love Jesus Christ most and follow him. We're not done with the struggle, but we have the promise of eternal life with you when the struggle will be completely finished. And so, God, I pray that Jerusalem Church is a church that points people to the cross of Jesus Christ for healing and for life. And I pray that each individual here that has heard this message from God this morning, that they will look to the cross, that you would give them new birth, which produces faith, which then justifies them, and they are no longer condemned. That is awesome. And God, I pray that you make it happen. Someone's life, maybe that we don't know or expect this morning, that they could be awakened to the joy of eternal life in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.